0: When the idols of the world find a home in the house of God, the wrath of God is aroused. Shall I say that again? When the idols of the world find a home in the house of God, the wrath of God is aroused. And for all our appropriate, appropriate and good, emphasis on the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, such things, meaning the love and the gospel of Jesus, serve to heighten our appreciation of who God is and his holy wrath against sin. Because that is exactly what Jesus bore on the cross and propitiated for us through his death. And when the things that put Jesus on the cross are celebrated in the church, then woe unto us when the things that Jesus died for become the things that the church stands for. Tonight, we're going to read the story of the golden calf. I would say the golden calf is one of three of the most grievous sins in Scripture. Number one, you have the Garden of Eden. They were in the garden and they ate the fruit. Number two is this one. They were at Mount Sinai observing the Shekinah glory of the Lord and they worshiped a golden calf instead. And number three, of course, is the crucifixion of Jesus himself. And all three of those are examples of God being present with the people. And the people instead choosing their own way, choosing to worship something else, Eden, Sinai, and Calvary. And we must stare hard into this chapter because the idols of our day have crept into the churches and many are being led astray after gods, perhaps not of gold, but of various things. We often think of the last words that Jesus said in the scripture as go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's not the last words of Jesus in the scripture. Last words of Jesus in the scriptures are repent, 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 seven times to the churches. And then at the end he says, behold, I am coming quickly bringing my recompense with me to repay to each one according to what he has done. We have to remember that and we have to look hard into this chapter because we fall into this same sin. And if somebody, a nation of people, staring upon the flaming, majestic glory of the Lord can instead say, up, make us gods to go before us, then we ourselves must be wary of such things creeping into our own places of worship and our own hearts. Let's read verses 1 through 6 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You have to keep in mind the setting there at the foot of Mount Sinai, where the Lord has descended in fiery glory, voices and trumpets and shouts coming from this mountain so much that they could not even stand it when the Lord spoke to them. Moses has gone up, received the law, brought it back. They have agreed to the covenant. They have gone to the ceremonies and the sacrifices to establish the covenant. Seventy elders went up onto the mountain and ate the covenant meal in the presence of Almighty God. They descended the mountain. God called Moses back up to give him the blueprint of the tabernacle. The garments of the priests and the design for each of the furnishings of the tabernacle. And he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Joshua was halfway up the mountain with him. And yet, now, after 40 days, the people have become restless. They think to themselves, there is no way anybody could have survived 40 days and 40 nights on that mountain. Just look at that thing. It's on fire, it's burning, it's blazing, it's dangerous to be up there. So, Moses, as far as they're concerned, is dead. Meanwhile, there's this God that they're dealing with that is so mysterious and so foreign to them. They've never conceived of anything, any kind of God that is shapeless and formless and speaks to them in fire and in power. And they're not quite sure what to do with that. And they're beginning to grow restless and say things like, we can't stay here. We can't stay in the wilderness. We must get on to our promised land. So they resort back to the sins of the nations and create an idol to unify the people in worship, because that's something they can grasp and understand. They go to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the one who God had sent to bring Moses to Egypt. Aaron was a godly man. He had left him in charge along with her, the other man that had held up his arms at the battle against the Amalekites. And they say, make us a God. Make us a God. Perhaps Aaron had some experience with metalworking and that sort of thing. And Aaron, to his everlasting shame, agreed. Bring me the gold, which is what they were supposed to do in order to build the tabernacle. Do you remember? The Lord had said, bring the gold, bring the fabrics, bring the spices and the oil. And he took that gold and he fashioned it into a calf. The Egyptians worshipped a god named Apis, who was a calf god, often depicted as sitting down with a a sun between its horns. And this was supposed to be the child of the sun goddess who was a mediator between the gods and the people, which perhaps explains why they built a golden calf, because they were looking for something that they could comprehend in between the Lord and themselves. The Canaanites also worshiped a bull or a cow god who was Baal or Baal as it would have been pronounced, who was the high god of the Canaanites. And look at what they say. Not only does Aaron take all the time that he had to take to craft this golden image, Never once did he turn back and say, I can't do this anymore. I'm stopping right now. He completed it. And the people look upon it and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They have taken the opening words of the law. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they have ascribed it to this golden thing that they made with their own hands. And Aaron sees that and he builds an altar And they begin to worship. And says, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. There's their excuse. We're not worshiping a different God. We're worshiping the Lord. That's who this idol is to represent. The Lord will dwell in this idol. And when we worship this calf, we are truly worshiping the Lord. This would be the same excuse that Jeroboam would give in 1 Kings chapter 12. When he broke apart from the nation of Judah. And he was concerned that the people will leave me, they'll go back to Jerusalem, their hearts will be tied back to Jerusalem, and the kingdom might reunify, which very well might have been the Lord's intention in the first place. But instead, he sets up two golden calves at the north and the south of the northern kingdom, worship of convenience for the people. And he says the same thing in First Kings 12, these are your gods which brought you out of the land of Egypt. I hope you are able to feel in your heart the gravity of what they have done. The horror. It almost makes you sick to consider that after everything that God had done for them, these 70 men that had sat in his presence and seen him seated above the plain of sapphire glass, and now they're going to worship a golden animal. And for whatever their religious intentions might have been, whatever their justifications, they ate and drank, and then it says they rose up to play. The word is tzachak. That's where we get the name Isaac from, Yitzhak. Isaac, remember, means to what? To laugh. To laugh or to mock. You remember that Abimelech saw Isaac laughing with his wife. And that's how he knew that this was his wife and not his sister as he had lied and said. That word for laugh was used as a metaphor for sexual activity. So by saying they rose up to play and to laugh, it implies celebration. It implies a, a time of joy and a feast but it also implies revelry it implies sexual immorality paul says in 1 corinthians 10:17 they committed sexual immorality before the golden calf so not only have they built this idol not only have they ascribed the works of the lord to this idol not only have they offered sacrifices to it but now they are engaging in sexual immorality in worship of the Lord, as they say. What did God tell Pharaoh? Moses through, God through Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go that they may go into the wilderness and worship me. And they had fought 10 plagues. They had passed through the Red Sea and passed through the wilderness that they might go and worship the Lord. And now they have turned their hearts to an idol of gold. They have turned away from the Lord. And the heartbreak is that we as Christians, can so often do the same thing. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, or the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul says, in the last days, of which I firmly believe we are living, there will be those that will depart from the Lord and will instead give heed to other gods, teachings of demons, deceitful spirits, And when I speak of the church tonight, I largely speak of it with a capital C, meaning the church mostly in our nation, of which we are one. I believe that we have have done our best to hold to the standard of Scripture, but we don't get to pass the buck that way. Have we not introduced the gods of the world and attributed their evil to the Lord? The bull idol was a symbol of sexuality. It was a symbol of virility for these people. And as they worshiped the bull, with sexual immorality, it was their way of honoring and worshiping that thing. This is our first idol, the bull, sexual immorality. Is there any leash on sexual perversion in the United States of America? Is there any? And if there is, is it not slowly being eaten away? And let the world do what the world will do. Let's talk about the church. The church slowly, slowly throughout the decades have begun to excuse divorce for any reason. Fornication. Oh, it's just what you do when you're young. You have to, it's hard to tell young people to control themselves. They can't help it. They have to commit fornication. Adultery. Largely in allowing people to commit adultery, split from their church and go to a different one where they'll be welcomed instead of called to repentance. Homosexuality. Never mind allowing it. Try celebrating it, ordaining it in the churches, speaking about it as something that God views as a matter of justice, to be permitted. That applies right away to transgenderism. Same thing, that we are, what God has created male and female, we say there truly is no difference. They're malleable, they can go back and forth. That's the way God made you. It tells some woman that wants to live as a man, don't let somebody change how God has made you. Never mind saying this is psychology, they're saying this is theology. And all manner of pornography. All manner of pornography. And this is not just for the men, by the way. Although, men struggle with this. The Bible says, if a man looks with lust upon a woman, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But I will say this as well. The Bible says that whoever calls one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were tied around their neck and thrown into the sea the women and the ladies in our country and even in the churches are valuing and lifting up the ideal of having themselves looked at and judging themselves by their bodies and desiring to be an object of lust by men. Sexual immorality, the bull God that we've introduced into the church. Maybe you don't worship a bull. Maybe you worship a pig, the God of self-indulgence. Like they did then, The Lord had put limits upon them, godly, legal limits in his righteousness, and they burst them all open in once. It'll say later that they had broken loose. They had broken out. We also have no limits on our indulgence. There are more people overdosing of drugs now than ever before. Well, they're depressed, they're they're taking drugs, they're taking things to get themselves high and to feel better. Pharmakia, the Bible calls it. Drunkenness. Oh, just part of growing up. Dangerous excess. We eat beyond all reason. We're the reason, we are dying. People are dying in our country because we can't stop controlling the way we eat or the way that we shop. We put ourselves in debt beyond all reason for this. And our greatest celebrations have become great public debauches, self-indulgence. And if anybody wants to come along and tell you you shouldn't do that, we've got a million excuses why it's not a big deal. You're worshiping perhaps a golden pig in that case or perhaps you're worshiping a golden owl, the wisdom of this world, sacrilege. How many heresies have come into the church and become not attacks from the outside as they were in the days of Jerome and Justin Martyr and the first apologists. They're coming from within the church, coming within the seminaries. Every good seminary, it seems, is being eaten out from inside till they become publishers of the same godlessness that they were erected to fight in the first place. Denying the work of God, denying His Son, Jesus, Universalism, doesn't matter what you believe, God will save everybody. Is there a more dangerous heresy than that? To tell the world you don't need the gospel, you'll be fine? To tell Christians don't bother somebody else that believes something else, God's got them? They tamper with the scriptures. They dismantle doctrines that have been established since the early days of the church because we in our wisdom know better and we can evaluate those things better than they could. And now those that hold up to the ancient doctrines of the church, as we do, are held up as extremists and radicals. There's the God of skepticism. I think an ape would be an appropriate God for that. We believe ourselves to be so smart with our so-called science. You know that's what science means, is knowledge. What does the Bible say about knowledge? It puffs you up. We hold ourselves up to be the measure of all things. If we can't explain it, it must not exist. Not only are we able to evaluate something, we're able to tell you what the moral and metaphysical implications of it would be. And because I know how to get this data, therefore you should trust me to give you the moral conclusion from it. We bow down to ourselves. There are even churches that have denounced what they call metaphysical reality. It doesn't matter whether or not heaven or hell exists. What matters is helping people right now because what do they believe beneath all that? None of it's true and none of it's real because it's been disproven. Or perhaps you worship a golden wolf, the God of scorn. The world is dividing into packs and going for each other's throats. And we in the church have done a terrible job of setting a better example. We have rage, rage and anger in our souls. The Bible says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Hate and bitterness towards each other, declaring our brothers to be our enemies because of some political position they've taken. We withhold forgiveness from certain groups because of what they've done in the past. We withhold love because of what this person said or this person did. Somehow in the name of God, we call ourselves standing on the truth as we rage and fight and spit and curse. Now you may not be guilty of all of these things, but which one is making a play for your heart? Which one is trying to find a crack to find its way in? because when the Lord delayed to send Moses down, the people built a God of gold and the devil showed them all to be fools. And that is what can happen if we let the delay of the Lord's return get to us. And we say, we must take matters into our own hands. These things, I hope not here, but in our church with a capital C, these things are being exalted and worshiped. So here's the question. What does God think of all this? What does God think about these things? I don't really care what our opinions are. I don't really care what yours or mine is. What does God think? Well, verse seven, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Notice how that has shifted. Your people that you brought out have corrupted themselves. That's the same corrupted themselves is the same word in the same form that was used in Genesis chapter 6 when it talked about the people that had corrupted themselves and God sent the flood. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. The Hebrew there, the Lord combines two verbs together in one and he says, go get down. I love the old King James there. Get thee down Moses and put a stop to this. The Lord knew we have to get that first. God knew what was going on. God sees what's going on in our churches God saw what was going on in Belshazzar's court when they were toasting the gods of gold and silver with the sacred vessels of the temple. And he reached down and he wrote on the wall that you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. God sees and he rages over the stubbornness of Israel. Imagine these words coming out of the mouth of God. They have made for themselves a golden calf. I'm sure Moses feared for his own life at that point. And he intended to destroy them. And by the way, this would have absolutely been his right under the terms of the covenant that he had made with this people. You will be my people and I will be your God. And they had broken that covenant before they had even seen all of it. He was well within his rights. And not only that, well within his rights as a God of justice to punish their sin. He says, I will reform the nation from you, Moses. Just as it came first through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I will eliminate the other tribes and start over with you. So what is God's opinion on sin among his people? Well, he says it right there. His wrath burns hot. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. In Luke 12, Jesus told a parable about A master that set his servants over a vineyard and the master delayed to return. Very similar situation. The Lord said, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. This is what the Lord says happens when people regard the delay of the Lord as the permission of the Lord and begin to engage in sin. The Lord says, I will show up in wrath and fury and you'll never see me coming. God's wrath. It is his response to wickedness. It is God's super emotional, his divine emotional response to wickedness and his wrath and his judgment is fierce. It's never impulsive and it's never wrong. So when the wrath of terrible almighty God is aimed at you, if the church continues in the things I have described, she will face the terrible wrath of almighty God. Revelation 2 verse 5, Jesus told the church that if you persist in these things, I will come to you quickly and I will take your lampstand from its place. Meaning I will remove you as a church if you persist in these things. How could anyone escape for tasting the grace of God and discarding it for other things? The mountain was a flame, and they preferred a graven image. And so do so many. When we come to the Lord God, we say, I want something a little more tangible. I can't see the Lord. What, am I supposed to just go to church and behave for the rest of my life? How boring. I'll come to God later. God's okay with how I live my life. The penalty for sin, the wages of sin, the word says, is what? Death. Jesus, when he separated the sheep from the goats, will look upon the goats and he will say, depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, Anybody who told you the Bible doesn't talk about hell or the Bible doesn't talk about hell as a place of burning fire, they're wrong. Jesus said it is a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Those who corrupt the goodness of God's creation and trample on his love and hinder his gospel will be punished in torment forever. There is no end to hell because it is an everlasting sin that has been committed. And this is what the Lord says happens to those that persist in sin. That is God's opinion towards you and your sin and me and my sin and the American church and its sins. And when we consider... The amount of indulgence, the amount of things that the churches, never mind the nation, the churches have engaged in and permitted and celebrated. How dare we come to God and ask him for blessings? Ask God for healing or miracles or provision? How dare we ask him to strike down another nation so that we might continue or ask him to strike down our political opponents so that we continue to sin in peace? That is the Lord's opinion towards sin, just in case you weren't certain about it. Now, what is our attitude to be? Let us read verse 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses steps into the gap. God says, Get out of my way, Moses. I'm about to destroy this people. And Moses jumps in front of the people with his arms outstretched. No, Lord. No, don't do it. He's appealing to God's story with Israel. We've been following it from the book of Genesis, beginning with Abraham and all that he went through to finally get that child of promise. And then Isaac. And then Jacob and all of his trials. And then the 12 tribes. What happened to Joseph and how they were brought to Egypt, and 400 years of slavery, and the mighty Exodus? And Moses goes, No, it can't end this way. And he says, You can't allow the nations to scoff at you. Some God they worship. He took him out of slavery, he led him into the middle of the desert, and blew him all up. You can't let that happen. And God listened. The ESV translates it, God relented from the disaster. I think that is a much better translation than the older ones that say God repented of the evil. Because of the way that we define those words. Evil in the Bible, the word ra, does not always imply moral evil. It can mean a bad thing that happens to you. Right? So an earthquake is evil, even though there's no moral connotation to that. So that evil, and by repenting, the idea is not that God was doing something wrong and then changing his mind. The idea was that God relented. So I think that's a, that's a great example of the modern translations updating for the way that words change over time. Amen. God was not about to sin. Don't get that idea in your mind. God would have been perfectly justified in ending the nation right there. And would have been able to keep his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Moses. But do you see that Moses is not tempted by the offer of prestige here? I'll make you a great nation. I don't want that. He steps in to plead for his people. Prayer is a mysterious thing. Moses appealed to God's mercy. And there are so many ways we can look at prayer wrongly. Here's the best way to look at it. It's a conversation between two people. Between you and God. It's a conversation between Jesus and you. It's a conversation. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do. The Lord acts in time, and he invites us to pray and intercede for those that are around us. The Lord invites us into his counsels and even seeks our opinion. Your conversation with God matters. In fact, in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, when they were in Babylon, and what they were saying was, oh, this will be over very soon. Jeremiah had said it would be 70 years, and the people didn't believe it. God will get us back soon. And Ezekiel 22 talks about all that they had done to utterly deserve this. And in Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, 30, the Lord says, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. God says, I was looking for somebody to do what Moses did and stand up and say, no, Lord. I'll do what's necessary to bring the people back. Delay, delay. We've seen throughout the history of the Bible, the Lord did delay judgment over and over again. Manasseh was the witch king of Israel. He practiced necromancy and sorcery and sacrificed his own children. But when he repented, God delayed judgment. He was willing to do it again, but this time the land was so wicked, there was no one until the Lord finally told Jeremiah, stop praying for this people. Judgment's coming. We often as Christians, and we will get to this in just a moment now, we share the wrath of God. We share his indignation at sin. Psalm 119 says, Lord, it is time for you to act, for they have counted your word as void. But in our quiet place, we intercede with tears for every sinner that goes astray. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. He would go out and proclaim that we use the word a Jeremiah, right? To talk about declaring everything that's bad about something. Well, he went out proclaiming those things, but he did it with tears in his eyes because he knew what was coming and that the people could not see what was about to come. Jesus was a weeping prophet. Before Jesus declared, your house is left to you desolate, it says Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. I've sent you countless people to bring you back and you killed them all. And he's tears streaming down his face. And we must be so as well, lest we become prideful. We become like that Pharisee that said, Lord, I thank you. I am not like other men, even this tax collector. You need to take responsibility in prayer for your community. Even if you yourself have not participated in its sins. When Daniel and Nehemiah prayed unto the Lord to restore the people from exile, they used we and us language. They didn't say, Lord, look what they have done. Even though Daniel was a righteous man. Nehemiah was a righteous man. But when they prayed, they put themselves with the people they were praying for. And then you need to get to work, which is what we're going to see. But it all begins with a heart of intercession. Consider that your prayers might be the only thing staying God's hand upon our people. Consider that. If it did depend on you, would you continue to pray? Because it just might. Verse 15 through 20 Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, remember Joshua was halfway down the mountain. He said to Moses, "There is a noise of war in the camp. Joshua was a general. He was concerned, but Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses's anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So he descends such a famous picture descends with the matching tablets of the covenant, Contrary to popular understanding, it was not one through four or one through five on one, and then one through five on the other. It was front and back. There were two tablets. Why? One was for the Lord, one was for the people. It was a covenant, it was an agreement they had made between them. And he comes down and Joshua is afraid, he's concerned. And verse 18 is a poetic verse. You can kind of see it in the English there, but it's much more clear in the Hebrew. It is not the sound of victory, it is not the sound of defeat but it is the sound of singing. It's an ominous verse. Imagine Moses is coming down. The Bible said that when Moses was in the presence of God, his face shone. So down he comes, carrying the tablets, Joshua at his side, his face shining like the sun, and there's the people engaged in sexual immorality in worship of a golden calf. The altar he had made to the Lord is abandoned, and they've made a new one. And there's revelry going on down at the foot of the mountain. I believe verses 19 and 20 are a condensed version of what happened, not necessarily in order. Because what we're going to see is that Moses is going to confront Aaron and then he's going to send the Levites out to put a stop to the worship of the people. So I believe by saying this, it's almost giving you the severity of his reaction, not necessarily in chronological order. But if, if you read that differently, that's not such a big deal. The point is he broke the tablets of God. And this was not a fit of rage. Not Moses just getting angry and snapping him over his knee. This was a symbolic ceremonial gesture of the covenant that they had broken. And they had agreed to the covenant. They had partaken in the sacrifices and gone up into the presence of the Lord and agreed to be his people. And then they had turned away at the first opportunity. And there's a play on the Hebrew words here where it uses the engraving of the calf and the engraving upon the tablets to compare and contrast the two. And they're both going to be broken and smashed to pieces. The calf was burned. If it was solid gold, it would have been melted. If it was wood overlaid with gold, then the wood would have burnt and the gold also would have melted. In any case, they took the pieces, ground them up, and scattered them on the stream. So Deuteronomy 9.21 says it wasn't that he took a cup, it was on the stream of water that they drank out of. It was ritual. They had to drink it as as a way of affirming and acknowledging their guilt, which is why I believe that this probably came after the next section we're going to read here. It's a conclusion of what ultimately happened, because first thing they have to do is subdue the people before he's able to do these things. I think that's the best way to read that. But this is an example. Moses, seeing this and so angry, He smashes not only the tablets of the covenant, but the idol itself. This is what you call righteous indignation. It reminds us of Jesus Christ in the temple in John chapter 2. Jesus made a whip. He beat people out of that temple. He flipped tables over and started a stampede and refused to let people come in, into the temple. And they didn't confront him until the next day. Because they're not messing with that. And the disciples looked at him and it said they were astonished. They'd never seen him like this. This was the wrath of God being demonstrated in him, and it's an example for you and for me. Psalm 97:10 says, "O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Hate evil. John says, "Do not love the world or the things in the world." James said that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil." Our attitude is to be that of God towards sin, especially in the churches and especially in our own lives. We do not tolerate sin in the world, but we acknowledge that they're unregenerate. But when it creeps into the church, Jesus had no patience with those Pharisees, no patience with the priests. But it is so easy to be tolerant of that which before God is intolerable. Simply as a result of custom, that's the way we do it here. Or repetitive exposure. Things that shocked our ears the first time we heard them 20 years ago. And now it just passes right over because it's, it's just part of the way things are now. The Lord allowed me, I believe, in preparation for this to be struck by several things that I saw today uh, when I was just online. And I'm not going to give any specific examples. But things that any other day might have just passed right over as just you know part of the news living in the world. But that's how unspeakably wicked some of these things were. This is, this is not okay. There has to be heartbreak in your heart. Not, not acceptance. Anger in your heart. If not at the person bound up in it, then for the person that's bound up in it. Amen. We live in a libertine culture. You know, we may just very well be reaping the fruit of building a nation based on freedom. You know, I'm glad that we live in a free country. But the inherent danger of living in a nation where our primary value is liberty is you wander into libertinism. No one can tell me what to do, not even God. That's our danger. And you can let it infect your religion and you can become, you can come to a place. And many are there today where you find yourself in judgment of God. You're not allowing God to judge you. You are sitting in judgment of his word and say, this isn't right and God is wrong. Isaiah said, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe unto us. Moses was fierce and angry as we ought to be. But look at how he aims it. In verse 21 through 24, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It was just as dumb back then as it is now. You're not missing anything in interpretation if that sounds really stupid to you. I'm inclined to think that this was the first thing that Moses did. First thing is grab Aaron by the scruff of his neck and take him aside. What are you doing? What did they do to you to make you do this? Did they they hold your wife at sword point? What did they do? And Aaron tries to appease Moses. When David was confronted with his sin, he fell on his face before the Lord and said, I have sinned. And he wrote Psalm 51 to pour out his heart. Aaron tries to calm Moses down to blame the people and come up with the lamest excuse the world has ever heard. Well, what else are you supposed to say when you're confronted with the prophets of God and you're insisting on your own way? Whether somebody comes to you and confronts you with what you've done and says, this is wrong, it must stop. Or when you're opening up the word and something leaps off the page, and like Hebrews says, it cuts you open, dividing your soul and spirit, and you know you must change. How do you respond? We make bad excuses. The first thing Aaron did, and this is the first thing we do, we try to minimize the sin. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. What are you so worked up about, Moses? What's the big deal? I understand you're upset, but don't just chill out. It's fine. They're worshiping the Lord as if it were no great thing or even beneficial. They were about to walk away. So I, I you know, I met them halfway. They're worshiping the Lord, but they're worshiping an idol. I know it's not ideal, but it's, it's what we've got. I think a small view of sin is one of the most dangerous truths of today. That we can't understand how evil sin is. We say things like, how could God judge anybody? How could God send someone to hell? How could God do? I don't understand. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because sin is cancer. It eats everything. It makes everything worse. It corrupts the world itself. It's keeping us out of heaven because God cannot look upon sin. And when we try to take a small view of it, or when pastors try to accommodate it, you, you see pastors in churches or seminaries or, or, what's the word, parachurch ministries that start making these little compromises. You, it's just a matter of time until that thing is totally given over to something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. These little compromises, look, yeah, okay, it's not ideal, but we can disagree, and we want to make sure that we can reach everybody, and yeah, I know, that's kind of the way things are, but let's, let's, let's let them have the conversation. And you let the fox in the hen house, and it spoils the vineyard it ruins it. Number two, we try to blame other people. We criticize. You know what these people are like, Moses. Don't look at me. It's them. You know what they're like. They're set on evil. Remember all those times they wanted to kill us because they didn't have bread in the wilderness? Well, yeah, that's them. They didn't even want us to come and lead them out of Egypt. They almost killed us at at the Red Sea. You know what they're like. And we do this too. We try to absolve ourselves. Well, you know what, that's just this generation and that's the way it is. And you know, don't don't look at me. Yeah, I do this, but at least I don't do that. Yes, I have anger and, and, and hate in my heart, but at least I don't talk about it. Oh, I hate people, but at least I don't kill people. I kill people, but at least I don't kill lots of people. We you can even play this game forever. My sin's not as bad as their sin, therefore my sin isn't such a big deal. And as long as you can find somebody whose sin is worse than yours to point to, you think you're good and you never have to deal with what's going on in your heart. My friend, that is not how God looks at it. When we participate in the sins of our nation, we are culpable. And number three, I read a quote from an old sermon in the 1800s, somebody preaching on this passage, and he says, we blame the fire. We describe the results as inevitable. We try to deflect blame. We don't take responsibility for it. We don't say, you're right. I, I can't believe I did this, Moses. This is, i help me. I'm stuck. I feel stuck. Can we, can we stop this together? I, I put the gold in the fire. For what reason? Well, just to see what would happen. And then out came this calf. And you know, this is how a lot of the pagan religions of the day said their idols came about. They said that we fell asleep and we woke up the next day and the temple was there. It was just—it was built. We put the gold in the fire and out came the God. And this is supposed to legitimize their worship. And this was the story that Aaron was trying to tell. That it was inevitable. It wasn't my fault. It was going to happen anyway. So what difference does it make if I'm the one to do it? Well, if they're going to lie at work anyway. So if I don't do it, someone else will. They're going to swindle somebody. Without me or with me, so I might as well be the one to do it. Maybe I can minimize it. Let sin take place if it must. But you never be the reason for it, regardless of the circumstances. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, received a letter from a group of silversmiths in the early church. And the way that they made a lot of their money was fashioning silver idols. And of course, they weren't supposed to do that. You can't do that. And they said, should we do this or not? And he said, of course not. You can't give somebody an opportunity to worship something. You can't make graven images for a living and be a Christian. And they sent them back and they said, but this is my living and I must live. And Tertullian very famously said, must you live? Must you live, Christian? I need my job. No, you don't. I need that friendship. No, you don't. I need that money. No, you don't. If I don't stay there, then nobody else will be able to stand. Fine. Let the Lord sort it out. Do not be complicit in the sins of the people around you. All these excuses sound so good. It's not a big deal. It's their fault, not mine. Well, it this was going to happen anyway. Job had a lot of excuses in Job 42. He had a lot of things that he wanted to say to God. When I see God, I'm going to tell him. And in Job 42.5, he said, I had heard of you, Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When you stand before God, none of your excuses are going to fly. All these atheists that make these quippy little things about what they're going to say when they stand before God, they're not going to have a word to say in his presence. They're going to fall at their feet and call him Lord. And our excuses should not fly for each other either. When somebody comes up to you and explains why they're doing something, you need to be the one that says, that's not a good excuse. That's not a good reason. You just don't want me to be happy. Not that way, I don't. Our job is to expose bad excuses for what they are. So Moses comes down in his hot anger. And the first thing he begins to do is call out the bad excuses. And this is what the church does. We call out the bad reasoning behind it. I wish the church could just be more positive and not talk about sin so much. That's our whole thing is that we're delivering forgiveness of sin to a world that's dying and going to hell. Oh, that doctor, all he wants to talk about is illness and sickness. He's a doctor. You need him. You need the church. We must talk about these things, especially now Well, people don't want to hear it. Then all the more ought we to speak up. As Moses did, while well, there's a raging party going outside in honor of a golden calf, and he's going to do something about it. Verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Understand that? Look at them. They think they're so special. They're so unique. Look at them now. They're acting like fools. Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and this is where I believe the sequence of events, uh, you need to put the grinding of the idol after this because they had to put a stop to it first. He stands in the gate of the camp and says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Is there anybody left here that still serves the Lord? And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you Levites have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Seems that while he was able to get Aaron away from the altar, the Bacchanal, the party, could not be stopped. So Moses calls for those who were still loyal, and it seems that there were few. The Levites, his own tribe, were sent out to strike down the idolaters. What's going on here? He's not just saying go into people's houses and kill them in their sleep. He says these revelers that will not stop worshiping this golden calf, start killing them until they get the picture and stop. This is the only way we'll be able to get this party broken up so that we can get rid of that golden thing and maybe they'll listen to me again. So he sends them out. And by saying, kill your brother and your son and all that, his whole point is not go to the people you love most. His don't spare anybody. If they're committing this kind of sin, if they're engaging in pagan orgy before a golden calf in the name of the Lord, the penalty is death and you will be the one to carry it out. And 3,000 people were killed before they broke up. And God rewarded them with the exclusive right to service in the tabernacle and temple. Why the Levites? Why do we read about the Levites in the Bible? It was supposed to be the firstborn son. Do you remember this? We've talked about this. In Exodus and so on, he said, give me your firstborn child. They shall be ordained to my service. But now he says, this time, I'm changing my mind. We're going to use the Levites as a reward for their loyalty to me. If you think this is too harsh, then you do not despise sin and you do not love God yet enough. You do not understand the grievousness of sin and you do not understand the glory of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Consider the flood. God drowned the world for its sin. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron that were consumed in the holy place for offering strange fire. Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about their offering in the church. God struck them dead in the portico of Solomon. Phineas, the priest that put a spear through two people that were committing the sin that had brought a plague upon the nation. God expects radical, even violent correction towards sin. It pleases Him because it's punishing iniquity and it's preventing further outbreak. Does God want to rule through fear? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, my friend. The beginning of knowledge. Now, our mission as a church is different because we're on a mission of mercy and the Lord has told us to receive the pain and the suffering of this world gently and kindly and meekly that we might be a testimony to the world. So how do we apply this? As a church, as a nation, as a family, you've got to get radical with your sin. Not try to hold on as much as you can, but to get rid of as much as you can that you might not sin. God rewards the radical. I worry, Christians. I worry at our nation's deafness to God. I worry at our ability to redirect our focus. And I'm going to say this kindly and calmly. So many of the big issues that blow through the church, whether it's racism, whether it's political matters, whether it's vaccines. Look, these are all things that you think about and have an opinion on. But we're still killing babies. We, we've completely dismantled sexuality in this culture. We, we've taken the word of God and said you don't have to believe every word of it. So while those things matter and have their place, we've got to deal with it. We've got some such obvious, grievous sins that we have an amazing ability to turn our eyes from and look for something else. That might also be serious, but give me a break. There are folks that don't even believe Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There are men that have decided to live as women standing in the pulpits. And we're worried about the coronavirus? Give me a break. We, we, what is wrong with us? You've got to be able to stop looking to everything else to ignore the big problem right in front of you. When you have a counseling situation and somebody puts a big ball of twine all gnarled up and snarled. You say, I don't know how to fix this, but that's sin. We'll stop that first. And you know what? Let's get over here and stop that sin too. Let's stop hating each other. Let's start loving each other. Let's start speaking kindly to one another and see if these problems don't resolve themselves. Start with yourself as I must start with myself, with this church, with your house and your community. We stand for righteousness first. First. Righteousness first, the gospel first, not the party, not even the constitution. We stand for God and his word first. It will take a Moses with his Levites to put a stop to our iniquity, or the Lord will send Egypt to come and round us up again. Can anybody in this room give a reason why God shouldn't send judgment upon this country? When you see the vileness that has crept into our churches. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Can you see the the difference in confidence in Moses when he was up on the mountain and since he's been back down? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Next time you see me, it's not going to be good for you. And the Lord sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. He returns up the mountain. Deuteronomy 9 verse 11 says he was up there for 40 days and 40 more nights to pray. Moses was was desperate, but he was bold before. But now that he's seen it for himself, he can hardly lift his eyes. He can hardly speak to the Lord. All he can do is ask for mercy. He even offers to stand with them. He says, Lord, if you're going to destroy this people, just destroy me too. Like Paul in Romans 9 verse 3, I wish that myself were accursed, cut off for the sake of my people Israel. Now listen, chapters 32, 33, and 34 are a unit. They go together. God is going to forgive the people, but we haven't seen that forgiveness yet. We're still in the prayer process. When he says, Lord, if you're gonna, don't blot them out, but if you do, blot me out too. God says, Moses, if anybody commits iniquity against me, I will blot them out of my book. That's the book of life that Revelation talks about. He doesn't say, don't worry, Moses, I'm full of grace and mercy. That will come. But right now, all he has to say is justice and wrath. He says, you continue the journey, but I'm going to punish this people. And verse 35 says that a plague came upon them. Doesn't give any further detail, just says that there was a plague. So I would imagine that during these 40 days, while Moses is up there interceding for them, that people are suffering under some sort of sickness. This chapter ends by God insisting upon guilt and the consequences of sin. And you must not miss this point. Yes, grace. Yes, mercy. Yes, the cross above all things. But if you use the grace of God as a cloak for sin, then you show yourself to be no saint, but a sinner. Remember those that came to John the Baptist and wanted to be baptized for repentance? He said, who who invited you? Go bear fruit worthy of repentance. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. And every branch that does not bear fruit will be thrown into the fire and burned. Hebrews 12, 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Hebrews says, don't think that you can play games with God and say, I'm a Christian. He says, if under the old covenant they were punished, what makes you think that the new covenant is going to have less punishment? It's a greater covenant. Nothing can alter the justice of God apart from repentance and the blood of Jesus. And even at the cross, it's the justice and wrath of God that was poured out in full force. I feel very much like Moses, and that I can barely stand the thought of my people's sins. If I stand and think about it, I get angry, I get sad, I get desperate, I despair. And I also can barely stand the thought of being without them. When I think of the Lord sending judgment upon my, my beloved country and my people that I love with all my heart, and seeing it all come to an end, it breaks my heart. And yet I know that whatever retribution may be sent our way is more than fully deserved. We want to talk about revival You know how every revival starts? It doesn't start with signs and wonders. It starts with people on their face grieving and weeping before God over their sin, overcome with the knowledge of his glory and his splendor and his righteousness, like Isaiah in chapter 6. And we often want to skip over that part. We'll do that in the opening prayer and then get to the good stuff. Revival comes when God's people fall on their face. What does he say? If my people who are called by name, my name will humble themselves. The word for humble is related to the word humiliate. Will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. If we come and pray and ask God for revival, what we mean is we'd like a really lively meeting today, Lord, but I have no intention of going home and changing anything, then woe unto us for being flippant with the things of God. Sin is intolerable before him. His wrath is mighty. His retribution is unstoppable. And you've got to remember that, that the cross is not just a picture of love, it is a picture of wrath. Sin is what nailed Jesus to that cross. And if we think that we can justify and adopt and take home some of those things, we're foolish. And we show ourselves to be outside yet of salvation. Our people go after gods not of gold, but of iniquity and a heart of sin. Do not share in these things. We've got to remain separate not participate in what's going on as co-laborers. It seems that so many people that want to come to me and they want to say, well, we've got to get out there and do more in the public sphere. There's always some catch there where what we want you to do is stand arm in arm with these people that are dying and going to hell and not talk about it. I will not do it. We must be a prophetic people, able to speak to every issue And why do we treat that when some law gets passed that enshrines iniquity as if the battle is lost, let's move on to the next thing? No, we must speak out. Well, they won't want to listen to us. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. People talk about this new kind of Christian that's very reasonable and we can finally talk with them. That scares me to death. We're supposed to be the light shining in the darkness. The darkness hates the light because their deeds are exposed. Take responsibility for your community by sorting your own house out first. Matthew 7, 5. Or get that plank out of your eye before you remove the speck from somebody else. Go home with your family. Fast and pray and say, Lord, where's the idolatry? If you care for your people, if you care for the Lord you care for your family and even your own soul, then you have to do what Moses did and crush sin in its infancy and tear down every idol. Men like Josiah and Hezekiah would tear down the high places and desecrate them so that nobody could ever use them again. Not keep the stuff around in case the next regime changes its mind and says it's okay to worship these standing stones again. There is reward waiting for those who are faithful to the Lord, but there is terrible justice and fury for those who rebel. And I tell you that Jesus Christ offers you free grace and salvation. But he says, anyone that does not abide in me, it's like a dead branch. You have to keep going. Do not think that you can say, well, once, once, once I committed myself to Jesus and I haven't done anything with it since then, so I'm sure it's fine. (laughs) When John the Apostle, and I'll close with this, John knew Jesus, it seems, in the Bible better than anybody else did. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, he leaned against his breast and spoke to him. They were friends, they were buddies, they might have even been related, depending on how you read certain passages. And yet, in the book of Revelation, when he saw Jesus in his glory, he fell down at his face, And he wouldn't get up at the glory of his friend and his Lord Jesus, whom he had handled with his hands and spoken to, as he said in 1 John, and had fond, dear, very human memories. But he sees him in his glory, and he can't abide the fire of his gaze. Revelation 19 says when he returns, it is with a sharp sword in his mouth to strike down the nations. So you must come to him as a supplicant, And say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need your help. I need your forgiveness. All I can ask for is mercy. Like Moses. Moses comes and says, I know we have no right to your mercy, but it's our only chance. So I'm asking for it. That's repentance. And those of you that have been saved for a long time, clean house, get into the courtyard of the temple and flip some tables over that God may have a pure church able to speak into this community and into this country. The Lord is not hindered from saving by many or by few. So may we be one place at least where the glory of God is exalted. The name of Jesus is lifted high. The power of the spirit is at work and sin is despised. Will you do that with me?